The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's been an interesting week in technology, as it always is each week. The uh, Ukrainian fighters are now using e-bikes in their war against Russia. We'll talk about how these e-bikes are sort of revolutionizing some of the things that they're able to do over there on the, the battlefield. The uh, Russian equipment captured uh, by the Ukrainians contains a lot of foreign computer chips, especially, I mean, some of those computer chips were manufactured by U.S. companies, which means our sanctions uh, on high-tech equipment have not really been working that well. And we want to give you a small warning about USB drives. They can carry some really bad stuff. So beware of a USB drive that you don't know where it came from. This week, we're going to feature Cheryl Sandberg. She's the COO at Facebook, Chief Operating Officer at Facebook, and she recently announced her retirement. She has a very interesting uh, career trajectory in Silicon Valley, and it tells us a lot about women in Silicon Valley. I think she'll be an interesting person to talk about. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from June in Burke. Dear Doc and Andrew, uh, I listened to the show last week and you talked about Grammarly. We are not allowed to use Grammarly because of security concerns. DOD blocks its use, both the full version and the web extension. DOD does not want documents being scanned by third-party apps. This is a real security threat. June in Burke, Virginia. Well, June, thanks for the email. That, that was really uh, an eye-opener, and I think uh, that DOD restriction makes a lot of sense because Grammarly scans documents if you, if you ins install the full version on it, it scans all your documents and analyzes your uh, writing style and, and gives you suggestions on how you can improve your writing. But, of course, that means that all your documents can be viewed by, uh, by, a, by a website, uh, by a third-party website scanning through it. And that would certainly be a security risk from a, from a DOD perspective. And I can see how this would create a problem for some people who were like, you know, going to graduate school or taking classes because a lot of universities use Grammarly as part of their writing protocol. And, um, and then they, uh, these, uh, these, uh, government employees would, you know, maybe they would load Grammarly onto their work laptop and boom, they've created a problem. So if they want to use Grammarly, uh, for their university work, they're going to have to put it on their 
personal laptop, and they're also going to have to make certain that they don't have any government government documents on their personal laptop because Grammarly will scan them all. That was an excellent uh, email, Jim. Yeah, you, Thank you, you don't want to lose your security clearance just because uh, you wanted good grammar. That's exact. <laughs> that is exactly right. And of course, that they have tools where any any computer which is which is hooked to the network, you know the the central security folks, they scan all those computers and know everything that's on your computer. And so they, they do continuous scans to see if there are any unauthorized programs. So, so in fact, you will be caught if you put it on your computer without, without permission. You will. Yeah. We got an email from Leslie in Oakton. Dear Tech Talk, we rented out a spare bedroom to a college student a while back. And while we were on vacation, the, the Wi-Fi router died. Now, he didn't want to be without Wi-Fi, so he, he bought a new router and, replay and installed it. When we got back from the trip, he gave us the password on the new router's wireless network, and we used it to log onto the network with our Windows 10 PC. Now, he gave us the router when he left, so now we have that router. Now, the problem is we lost the, the paper with the Wi-Fi password, and now we just bought a new laptop, and uh, you know we want to add it to the network, but we don't know the password. Wow, because it, you lost a piece of paper. <laughs> What right. happened to password manager? What happened? That's to that? right. That's not a good. That's not. Oh no, my good, goodness! Uh, that, that is not a very good way to do it. No. Uh, and there's there's no way to re retrieve the um, the the password from the Wi-Fi router itself. Now you you got a couple of options here. You could, since you have physical control of the router, you can press the reset button on the back, and that will reset the password. To the, to the default password that you can basically look up in the manual. Uh, and if you don't have the manual, you, you, can, you can go to the manufacturer and download the manual, uh, a PDF of the manual online. And it, it's probably something like admin for the username and admin for the password, something really simple like that. Uh, all the manufacturers have different, uh, different default passwords. And then you have, would have to log back in. You'd have to set up your Wi-Fi security password again. You'd have to name the network, your your SSID network, whatever you want, and, and you could reconfigure it. Now, an easier way to do it would be just to uh, reclaim the password or review the password on your existing laptop. Now, you said you had a Windows 10 laptop, and it turns out that the Windows 10 laptop does, in fact, have to store the Wi-Fi password when it logs on automatically. And you can go back in and you can view that password. And so you can reclaim the password from the from your existing Windows 10 laptop. So what you want to do, it's really easy to do. You want to you want to fire up the laptop, make sure you're logged into the uh, to your to your Wi-Fi network. Then you uh, open the security panel and then you, uh, the, you open the, the control panel, I should say. And on the control panel, there's something called network and internet. Click on that. And then when you bring up that panel, you want to view on view network status and tasks. Click on that. And then you should see the name of your Wi-Fi network over on the right. And then you uh, click on the wireless properties for uh, when you when you hover over the Wi-Fi network that you uh, that is yours. There should be a little window that pops up. Then click on wireless properties. Then you just select the security tab. And now you'll see a box that says network security key. It's got a series of dots. And you just 
what you want to do, there's a box beside that that says show characters. Click that box and uh, and then it will show the characters. Now, you'll have to put in the uh, the passcode for your uh, Windows laptop again. And once you put in your passcode again, the Wi-Fi password will show right up. I've, I've used this many times to to reclaim uh, passwords for my friends that have forgotten them in the past. So best of luck with that. And you had a great, great uh, tenant there buying you a new router. You just have to remember the, the password you already have just to get into the computer, though. Well, that's, that is... <laughs> you have to remember that, because some of us, we use we just open and close the computer, and, and often we're not actually asked to... On older computers, you're not asked to uh, put in your password every single time. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah you, can, yeah. yeah, you can just leave it on the laptop and forget. Like, oh, what was that one for this device? I forget, you know? Uh, you know, and after a while, you know, a lot of sites, you'll just log in automatically and put yes. in the password. And then, and then pretty soon you forget all the passwords yes, you because it's, you never put them in. It's a dangerous business, yeah. That's always a problem. We got an email from Elijah in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an old desktop computer that's running Windows 7. It's got two gigabits of RAM and a 200 gigabyte hard drive. The machines really run slow. How can I speed it up, Elijah in Ashburn? Well, there are a few things you could do, Elijah, to speed it up. You could add more RAM. I mean, two gigabytes of RAM is not really that much. Uh, you, could, you could go to four gigs. Uh, or possibly eight gigs would even be better to see what kind of RAM your computer takes and um, and how much you can put in it. You can go to crucial.com, C-R-U-C-I-A-L.com, and they have a system scanner tool. Just this click on the system scanner tool. It'll scan your uh, laptop, and it will give you um, exactly how much RAM you can add and what kind of RAM you need to add to your computer. It'll tell you the maximum amount of RAM. Now. Crucial, I know how they make money. They sell RAM. So they, they can, they'll sell you the RAM if you want, but you could just write down the RAM that they recommend and you could look around and see if you get a cheaper price. But, um, but Crucial's not, not a bad place to buy the RAM. That will, how, how does Crucial actually deliver the RAM to you, though? They just mail, it's just like mail order. You know, they'll just put in your, they just mail it to you. Physically, in other Physically, words. Physically, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They can't download the RAM over the over the internet. That would be that would be perfect, wouldn't it? But I, I didn't think that was possible. Okay. No, no, no. It's not possible. No, they just you just order it. It's just like ordering it from Amazon, except you've ordered it from Crucial. Very good. Uh, now the second thing you could do, you could replace your hard drive with a solid state hard drive. Those so, uh, solid state hard drives are a lot faster, and the prices have really come down. Chances are you've got really an old hard drive that's a little slow, so you can. You could replace it with a solid-state hard drive. That would certainly speed it up. The third thing is you want to make certain you're completely replace. You know, you're completely free of malware. That that can slow it down. You want to you want to make certain you don't have any malware on your computer. Now, here's the thing with Windows 7. It's out of support. You're not going to get any security updates. Uh, I think you're sort of at risk staying with Windows 7. Really. So what you could do, you could replace your Windows with Linux. Linux, you know, it's a free operating system, and you could download one of the one of the Linux distros like Linux Mint, and uh, which is which sort of is Windows like, and um, and you could uh, and that would really speed it up because Linux Linux is has much less overhead than Windows. So if you're just using it to surf the web, Linux may be uh, may be a good option for you. Uh, but any of these things will, in fact, help speed up your computer. We got an email from Remy in Whitestone. 
Dear Tech Talk, I read an article about how to retrieve a forgotten password from a web browser. Can I do it with my iPhone? Lightning destroyed my computer and I had to replace it. Now I can't log on to a couple of accounts because I can't remember the passwords. I know the passwords are on the phone because I can log into those sites with my phone. How can I do that? Well, Remy, you are in luck. The passwords are stored on your iPhone, um, you know, in, in the, um, on your iPhone. It's in the, um, in the browser of your iPhone, so you can, uh, you can log on. The one thing the iPhone doesn't do, it doesn't store Wi-Fi passwords. For some reason, they will not let you reclaim a Wi-Fi password from your iPhone, which is uh, kind, of a, kind of a discouraging at times when, when that happens. But what you want to do, if you want to get a, a password from your iPhone, you know, tap on settings in the iPhone. It looks like a little gear. You could tap on settings, scroll down and tap passwords. Now you should see a list of accounts that have their login information stored on your iPhone. You just tap on the account. And now you'll see the uh, account user's name which is what you log in with, your username that you log in with, and there'll be a row of dots for the password. Tap on the dots. You'll have to enter your iPhone passcode, of course, again, and now the password will be shown. So you can, there, and then just go down, and you can repeat that for other accounts. So you can easily reclaim all your passwords from your, uh, from your, uh, from your iPhone, and then you can log into your computer, then your computer will remember the password. So best of luck with that, uh, uh, best of luck with that, we uh, should, Remy. We should specify, though, he, um, he said uh, lightning destroyed my computer, uh, not the connecting thing an Apple's system that is called the lightning. He means no, actual no, yeah. physical lightning. lightning. Struck the house. Yeah. Yes, a thunderstorm kind of lightning. Thunderstorm, okay. and then he didn't, he didn't yes. have a surge So protector. that we're not blaming Apple's equipment here, just making yeah, it clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nothing to do with the, with the lightning connector. Yeah. We got an email from Tung in Ohio. Dear Doc and Jim, I save all my family pictures and party pictures on thumb drives. I've got over a dozen thumb drives containing several thousand photos. One of my co-workers told me it's a bad idea to keep files I don't want to use on thumb drives because they can get lost or go bad. She said I should transfer them to another kind of storage. What's your opinion? Tung in Ohio. Well, Tung, your co-worker is right. USB flash drives come in handy for temporary storage. They make it easy to transfer photos from one computer to another. But, you know, thumb drives are unreliable. If, if, for instance, you're writing to a thumb drive and you pull it out too quickly, you can corrupt the thumb drive. They're e and they're easily corrupted, they're, e they're fragile if you step on them. So if you've got any kind of critical photos, you, you wanna store them, first of all, in more than one location. Uh, now, you could copy all your pictures to an external USB hard drive, they are really, cheap so you could you could buy a you know a one or two or three terabyte external hard drive plug it into the usb port put your thumb drives in and copy them all to that external hard drive and then they'd be in one place you, you could you could put that in a drawer somewhere and then you'd know that you would have it and you could maybe create a subdirectory for every thumb drive so you could keep them separate on the hard drive that would actually make make a lot of sense uh, you could also uh, copy them to blank optical CDs, you know, re read-write um, DVD discs. Um, that's probably a lesser option these days because 
people are using DVD discs less and less as time goes forward. Uh, you can store them on the cloud. So, you know, you've got Dropbox, OneDrive, Google Drive, iCloud, Carbonite. So what I do, I, I, I actually store my stuff on using Carbonite. I store it with uh, OneDrive. I've got, I, I store stuff on Dropbox. Plus, I've got an external, um, external USB hard drive where I store my pictures. So I got my pictures three places, three or four places, so that if, if anything fails, uh, I won't lose a thing. And, and, you know, occasionally you do have catastrophes with your laptop, and uh, you really wanna, want to make certain that you can replace them. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We most certainly will, and stick around because we're about to meet the woman whose mission it was, or has been until recently, uh, to get Facebook to make money. How does Facebook make money? We'll find out the person who figured it out. Profiles in IT next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Cheryl Kara Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg is best known as Chief Operating Officer of Facebook and the force behind monetizing the site and for previously monetizing the Google advertising platform. Cheryl Sandberg was born August 28, 1969 in Washington, D.C. She's a local girl. Her family moved to North Miami Beach, Florida when she was two years old. She attended North Miami Beach High School where she graduated in 1987, ranked ninth in her class. She was the sophomore class president. Sandberg taught aerobics in the 80s while still in high school. In 1987, she enrolled at Harvard, graduating in 1991 summa cum laude uh, and Phi Beta Kappa with a Bachelor of Arts in Economics. While at Harvard, she co-founded an organization called Women in Economics and Government, 
While there, she met Professor Larry Summers, who became her mentor and thesis advisors. Summers recruited her to be his research assistant at the World Bank, where she worked for approximately one year on health projects in India, dealing with leprosy, AIDS, and blindness. In 1993, she enrolled in the Harvard Business School graduate program, and in 95, she earned her MBA from Harvard with highest distinction. After graduating from business school in 95, she worked as a management consultant at McKinsey & Company for about a year. Then her old mentor from college called her back, Larry Summers, and uh, he recruited her to work for him. Uh, he was actually, had been appointed Secretary of the Treasury under Bill Clinton, and so she was going to work for Larry Summers uh, during, the, the, during Clinton's first term from 96 to 2001. Uh, she assisted the Treasury work in forgiving debt during the Asian financial crisis in the development world. So up um, to this point in her career, so just kind of stop for yeah. there a sec. She's only been in finance and actually in sort of public policy finance, you know, in the sort of World Bank type stuff and Treasury type stuff, foreign policy things. So this is like she's not a techie yet here at all, right? And she's not a techie at all. This is a really interesting. Uh, she was actually recruited by uh, by Google. Um uh, this was back when Eric Schmidt was CEO and Larry Page and Sergey Brin were, you know, uh, just doing the technology stuff. And uh, Eric Sch Schmidt was the, uh, uh, they called the, the adult in the room. And at that time, you know, they, they, uh, Google had a fledgling advertising operation. And he hired her to actually monetize Google to actually build the advertising business. So she was hired out of government as VP of Global Online Sales and Operations. I mean, that's a, it's a big job. So she came in there and she built the whole, the whole Google advertising infrastructure and she built a, a, a team of people who could, actually, who could actually sell it. And she built it you know, from a team of like just a few people to several thousand. And she was responsible really for driving the revenue there at Google. She was like a very responsible person at Google. And she was actually, um, you know, uh, you know, one of the key people in the in the uh, in the C-suite who running Google during the formative years. And, and think it, about it, because Google wasn't making money either at first. It was a search engine and they didn't know, you know, and people getting free answers. Right. And, and so she's really she really transformed it into this behemoth that it is today, I think. Right. I mean, she, she did. And, and she set up this bid thing where you bid for bid for a ranking. You know, you, you the more you bid, the higher rank your ad is. So she said this sort of the self-managed bid process for people placing advertising on Google. She she set up that whole uh, that whole infrastructure. Well, she had a tech team working with her, but she was the strategic person. And, and as you'll learn later on, she had the ability to inspire teams and build teams and to set a vision and, and to get stuff done. In 2007, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, uh, who, who, of course, co-founder of Facebook, he met Sandberg at a Christmas party. And they were talking about stuff, how you manage companies, how you how she probably talked about how she built revenue there at Google. And of course, at that time, 
Facebook was bleeding money. They, they, they didn't have any advertising going on. They were just building a really cool site, and they had a lot of users, but they weren't making money at all. And Zuckerberg probably heard about her great success at monetizing Google, and he thought she'd be the perfect chief operating officer. So they actually met, met at this Christmas party in 2007. They met again at the World Economic Forum at Davos in January of 2008. And then they started uh, having a meeting for dinner and, and just discussing things over dinner. And, uh, and finally, in March of 2008, uh, Zuckerberg convinced her to leave a really lucrative job at Google and joined Facebook. And at that time, Facebook was really a small fledgling operation compared to Google. Many people wondered, why would she leave Google? If, But you see, at the time, uh, you had Eric Schmidt as the CEO, and then you had Larry Page and Sergey Brin as, the, as his two assistants, assistants in training. And there was no space for Sheryl Sandberg to move up to be chief operating officer at Google. She was as high as she was going to go, and she was relegated to purely advertising work, and she felt she felt like her career there at Google was stymied. So that was one reason why she left, and she thought at, at Facebook, she's got a clean slate. She's CEO right out of the bat. She can build revenue, help build an infrastructure at Facebook. So Zuckerberg really made it sound attractive. And basically, all the stuff that he didn't like to do, he gave to Sheryl Sandberg. He didn't, he didn't like to hire people, fire people. He didn't like to run HR. He didn't like to worry about advertising. He was more of a vision guy, and he, and he, left, he let Cheryl handle the details. Now, she quickly figured out how to make Facebook profitable. Now, I mean, before she joined, Facebook was a really cool site, and they assumed that profits would follow, but they didn't know when. Now, Sandberg oversaw the business operations, including sales, marketing, business development, human resources, public policy, and communication. She was the one that talked to the politicians when they got upset with Facebook. Now, by spring of 2008, she convinced the leadership that they should rely on advertising. There was reluctance on the part of the techies to put ads because they thought it would destroy the ethos of this beautiful site that they had created. By 2010, uh, just a year and a half or so after she joined Facebook, a little bit more than a year and a half, Facebook became profitable. It was really a quick turnaround. On May 18th of 2012, two years later, Facebook issued its IPO, an initial public offering. They finally were profitable enough that they could issue the IPO. At the time of the IPO, Sandberg had 41 million shares of Facebook valued at $2.38 billion. I mean, that was, that, that actually, she started there in 2008, in March of 2008, and by May of 2012, she had amassed $2.38 billion in valuation. So how do you think that happened? Did they offer that right away, or did she get that as a as part of the deal? Who, who negotiated that? Like how, you she, know the- she had about 1% of Facebook. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking that Zuckerberg, in order, to, in order to entice her away from Google, which was really lucrative for her, had to give her uh, a pretty good stock options. 
Yeah. So I'm so I'm certain it was it was a, probably if I I mean I don't know the details but the way they work they probably said look we'll give you so many stock options if you get us profitable by this so she probably had profitability goals that she I'd say met and exceeded and she probably had stock options tied to that so by the time the IPO hit she through her stock options she had about one percent of Facebook which which is really quite a, a good percentage given to, to somebody who's, who's brought in later at, you know later in the company funding and she's also not an investor in Facebook I think she negotiated a pretty good deal uh, and probably her experience at Google taught her how to negotiate <laughs> for the deal because I, I suspect she wasn't happy with what she had at, at, at Google but now she knows knows the name of the game and and Zuckerberg wanted her he wanted somebody to hand over all this stuff to. He knew he wasn't good at HR. He doesn't like to deal with people. He hates dealing with politicians. Uh, and he especially hates advertising because it, it, it taints the techie in him. So he was really, he really wanted to get her. And he wanted her to do for them what, what they'd done for Google. So she just negotiated a good deal. In 2012, she became the eighth member of the Facebook Board of Directors which was really kind of a big deal. She became the first female member of the board. She broke a lot of uh, barriers there at Silicon Valley, which was really a male-dominated club out there. And she, just by the way she managed, she was able to be accepted uh, by the techies. She wasn't viewed as a suit. She was viewed as somebody who would support them. And uh, it was a remarkable uh, achievement for her to go in there in that techie culture and deal with technology guys and get stuff done and be respected. How do you think she did that, though, specifically? I mean, do you have an insight into that? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go into the we'll details later that. on. But sort of the key was yeah. she listened. Uh huh. She didn't come in as a know-it-all. She just went around and said, hi, I'm Cheryl. <laughs> uh, what's going on? How can yeah. I help you? What are your problems? And she just listened. And and she she wasn't this know-it-all kind of person that just tells everybody what to do. And she was able to build extreme loyalty among the teams. And I'm telling you, tech guys, I have to tell you, they hate MBAs. <laughs> I mean... What, you know, once they said that, you know, some guy's got a, you know, he's a programmer and they put some MBA in charge of this. Oh, here we go again, another MBA. And so she had to overcome the bias against MBAs in management position, as well as the bias against women in management positions. And she was able to do that. She wrote, she wrote a book about it, she, which was actually um, a, a bestseller called Lean In. Lean In. Women work and the will to lead. She, so many women ask her how she managed to do this in Silicon Valley. So she, she, uh, she, she, she put this in her book, Lean In, Women Work and the Will to Lead. And, and her feeling was that a lot of women sort of step back and they don't, they don't want to take these leadership roles. And she just said, just go in there and go for it and be aggressive. Uh, and so this, be aggressive, but don't be... Don't be mean. Don't be inconsiderate. Just stand up for what you believe. And so, um, and so she was. Uh, so she sort of inspired a whole movement there in Silicon Valley, a lean-in movement. 
Now, the Lean In book is for its professional woman to help them achieve their career goals. And for men can read, men can read it if they want to contribute, uh, as she said, to a more equitable society. Now, she, she, uh, her personal life uh, also influenced her quite dramatically. She, she was married once very briefly, and then she married uh, her second husband, was really the love of her life, David Goldberg. He was CEO at Survey Monkey. Monkey. They, uh, uh, they actually had a, a fantastic partnership. And she did get a lot of good advice from David Goldberg. And, and, she th- and they, they had two kids, and she, was just, she thought her life was perfect. And they went on a vacation to uh, Mexico, and David was on the treadmill, and he died from heart arrhythmia on the treadmill suddenly and unexpectedly in Mexico. And this just actually devastated Cheryl. She came back after the loss of her husband, unexpected, and she had to deal with grief and, and, and bounce back. And so she, um, she addressed the grief and she, um, and she, uh, uh, addressed it and, and she was able to bounce back. In, in fact, which, what she did when she came back, uh, she was, she was, uh, she was, uh, this was in 2015. She was at Facebook then when, when her husband died, uh, David Goldberg. She came back and she actually, um, I mean, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to say anything. Nobody mentioned her. And she wrote a long Facebook post uh, concerning the death of her husband and how it affected her and how she's responding it was a long, thoughtful piece, and she posted it publicly on Facebook for all of the employees to see, and uh, she got just enormous support within the organization. So she dealt with grief by talking about it, and, uh, and she ended up writing a book, Option B, on how she dealt with this. It was uh, probably an extraordinary uh, uh, part of her life that she was able to navigate and, uh, and, uh, and move, uh, move forward. Uh, she, she ultimately, uh, several years later married again and, uh, but, and she set up a, um, a charity for, um, a charity which was in her name and the name of David Goldberg. And they're continuing to do good works that, that he would have liked to have done and so she is, is keeping his legacy, legacy alive. So she demonstrated two extraordinary leadership traits during, uh, during crucial part, uh, sections of her life. Now, in 2022, uh, June of 2022, that's just uh, this month, actually, she announced she was leaving uh, Meta. And th- that's the new name of Facebook, Meta. And uh, she's leaving as CEO. She'll remain on the board of directors, but she's going to leave in the fall of 2022. Now, her departure is expected. I mean, people were sort of thinking, okay, she's she's probably going to leave Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg moved into this meta thing, and he had this whole vision of meta transforming Facebook, and he really didn't involve her too much in that technical initiative. In addition, 
she was the fall guy, as they say, for all the negative press re, uh, relating to the Russian inter interference during the 2016 elections and the whole Cambridge Analytical data scandal where it was discovered that Cambridge Analytica was using data from Facebook for uh, targeting Republican voters and, and voters for Donald Trump. And, uh, and so the uh, people's data was being used in a way they didn't, didn't like, and she was the fall guy for that. Then finally, the, 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 the Facebook uh, revenue model was significantly disrupted by uh, Apple when they implemented their new privacy controls on the iPhone. And, and so uh, they're trying to now navigate that and, and get their revenue stream back up. It, it, it did take about a 20% hit because of Apple. So all of these things combined, people said, well, I wonder how long, how long she's going to be staying here, how long Cheryl's going to be at Facebook. So they were kind of expecting her to leave, and she finally did leave. And she just said she's, it's for a new chapter in her life. She said, I only expected to be at Facebook five years. And I've, and I've been here, um, you know, 12 years, a lot longer than I, than I thought I would be. And so she said, it's probably time for me to move on. Um, so uh, Mark Zuckerberg wrote a nice letter. He said, you know, she taught me how to run a company. She said, when, when she came in, I didn't know how to run a company. I didn't know how to organize a company. She, 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 taught, me, she taught me the ropes on running a company. He and, um, he and Cheryl still have a very excellent uh, relationship. Uh, but uh, I think I think kind of he has evolved as a leader uh, much in the same way that uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page evolved as a leader. And then Eric Schmidt stepped down as CEO of Google and they and they moved up. So I, I think that's sort of an evolution. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg feels like he's the adult in the room now and he doesn't necessarily need Cheryl. So I think it was time to move on. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Cheryl Kara Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, and how she transformed women in Silicon Valley. Okay, so if you listen to this show more than once, you're sure to know how Doc feels about Facebook in general. Uh, we've been rather complimentary today, but you may be surprised. He has a number of nice things to say about Cheryl Sandberg's management style. We've hinted at it. We're going to get into it deeper. Pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as Doc prepares to tell us what every boss can learn from Cheryl Sandberg. Observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. 
how do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now, many experts say that Sheryl Sandberg is responsible for Facebook's stunning success because Mark Zuckerberg was not good at logistics or handling other aspects of Facebook's business like HR and advertising. Now, there are some unique and surprising leadership qualities about Sheryl Sandberg that every boss can learn from today. Number one, engage every employee. As reported in Forbes magazine, when Sheryl Sandberg started at Facebook, started as Facebook COO, she went to hundreds of people's desks, interrupted their work, and said, Hi, I'm Cheryl. And then she asked a lot of questions and listened. She committed a scheduled time to talk to as many employees as possible, both formally and informally. Now, frontline people frequently have the answers to solving the company's most pressing problems, and you learn solutions as you talk to people. Now, this strategy also makes people feel that their ideas matter. So Sheryl Sandberg engaged every employee, and that's why she was able to build teams that could execute, even though she was an MBA and a woman in a technology world. Ask people what they think and encourage debate. Cheryl's known for asking many smart questions about what employees think, and she encourages debate. She understands the high value of debate. Now, many leaders have like a preconceived notion about how they want something done, and they don't want any debate. They do just the opposite. They shut it down if the person doesn't agree with them. But if you really want to build a team that will support you, you need to welcome and encourage debate. That will give you honest feedback and give you better information. And Cheryl was good at that. Be honest about your feelings. Many people think that revealing your feelings as a leadership, it, 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 re revealing your feelings as a leader is a sign of weakness. Cheryl thinks that it's a strength and makes employees more willing to discuss their feelings as well. When her husband died suddenly and tragically, she posted a long essay on Facebook and made it public. And she laid out all of her vulnerabilities and what this had done for her and, uh, and what she learned from it. So are you willing as a leader to show that you're human and to help others to be honest about their feelings? When Sharon's opened up to her team members, they felt a connection and were more open with her. 
and it was really a part of building trust of her team and her, and it allowed her teams to be more successful. Finally, be willing to address the elephant in the room. There's always some big issue that nobody wants to talk about. Now, the big elephant in the room for Cheryl at the time was the fact that there were too few women leaders. And, and she thought she would just, you know, shake it up a little bit. So she gave a TED Talk on why we have too few women leaders. Now, the talk was funny. It was backed with solid research. And it asked a question that Silicon Valley and corporate America needed to hear. Uh, she spoke of the tiny percentage of women in C-seats, C-suites. She was, she was honest in saying she didn't have the answers, just the questions and, and just a few ideas. This TED Talk being ended up being viewed by over 7 million people and resulted in her book called Lean In. It created a movement in a creation of what they called Lean In Circles, support groups for women who wanted to navigate the, the pathway of moving up within a corporate environment. Cheryl dared to bring the issue to start the discussion. So as a leader, are you willing to raise the questions that need to be open, openly discussed? So those are the four key elements that Cheryl brought to the table. Engage every, every employee, ask them what they think and encourage debate, be willing to address the elephant in the room, and most importantly, be honest about your feelings. So there you go, everything you wanted to know about Cheryl Sandberg and why she was successful in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, Doc, it seems every week now, because the war in Ukraine, there's a really cool sort of, um, you know, IT or technology aspects to it. And uh, the Ukrainian forces in particular are doing things in a very unconventional way. We'll talk about that in a moment, right, when we yes. rejoin as Tech Talk continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. You know, the Iranians have been capturing a lot of Russian equipment. The Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians, Doc. The, the Ukrainians. Yeah, we we almost yeah, got well, Iran involved in this war. We don't need Oh, that. not the Iranians. The Ukrainians. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. The Ukrainians and their fight uh, with Russia 
over uh, real estate in Ukraine have captured a lot of Russian equipment. And they started taking it apart to try to, you know, reverse engineer it. This this also will help them, you know, work against it. Now, and they started looking at where the chips came from that are embedded in, in this system. So they, they first of all, they looked at the chips that were inside of the um, uh, radar-equipped air defense command post vehicle, which was part of the Panzer air defense system. And the Ukraine intelligence said uh, that they found eight microchips from the United States in that in that air defense uh, equipment. Uh-huh. Who are the vulnerable companies, Intel. Doug? Yes. Yeah, who are they? They're from Intel, uh-huh. Micro, Micron Technology, Atmel Corporation, uh, or four of those chips manufacturers. Uh-huh. They also found five U.S.-made chips manufactured by AMD. Uh, Rochester Electronics, Texas Instruments and Linear Technologies in the Direction Finder Panzer Air System. So, I mean, Russians have got a lot of U.S. technology in their in their electronics. There were at least 35 U.S. chips, 35 U.S. made chips found in the KH-101 cruise missile, including those manufactured by Texas Instruments, Atmel, Rochester Electronics, Cypress Semiconductor, Maximum Integrated, Infineon Technologies, Intel, and Micron, and more. Uh, when they opened up an electro-optic system on the turret, the KA-52 alligator, they found 22 chips that were made by in the U.S. and one made Wait, by a Korean. I'm beginning to understand why there's a chip shortage in the world. I mean, if you're putting 35 chips on every cruise missile you send out, those are chips you're never going to get to use again. I know. <laughs> I this, mean, this is like— They've been this, buying up the world's chips or something. And, and I thought we were, we were supposed to have some sanctions against Russia getting the technology. Yeah, you wonder how it all—you know, I feel like this doesn't this kind of hint at evasion of sanctions in general if you have that many sources? That's right. right? So what, that what, what's happened you know. is they didn't, they didn't source them directly from the manufacturer. Uh-huh. They apparently sourced them from an unregulated market for recycled chips. Well, there you go. Aha. Uh-huh. Largely emanating from guess where? China. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Now, many of them appeared to be quite old, but still, it's an it's a real issue. Yeah. Now there's an, there's more news out of Ukraine. They've been using electric bikes in the war against Russia. Really? How does that work? I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, these these guys are highly innovative. So the Ukrainian fighters using electric bikes to battle against Russia, mostly in support of their reconnaissance mission and demining operations, the medical deliveries. I mean, these bikes can go up to 55 miles an hour, and they're relatively silent, and they help the, 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 the riders evade Russian fire. Now, the Ukrainian e-bike firm E-Link initially gave a few bikes to the military when the war began, and the military started using them strategically. So this is a, a bike that's actually manufactured in Ukraine. So now, of course, you know, you'd think the manufacturing plant could be the first target that the Russians yeah. would send their missiles onto. So they found a way to sort of bomb-proof their process, didn't they? They did. They, uh-huh. uh, they, they started, then they started manufacturing for the, for the military, and, they, and they, they would produce bikes that were military green. They had a small Ukrainian flag on the rear wheel, and they were issuing these to Ukrainian fighters. They were working from a bomb shelter. Uh-huh. There you go. That's how they protected themselves. They, yeah. they you know, because they, they knew that they'd be bombed. So they went into a bomb shelter. 
and they began making uh, making these bikes down there. And they they had a power bank which was based on lithium ion cells that they had left in stock. And uh, and so they started making as many e-bikes e as they could with their existing stock of lithium ion batteries. Then they ran out of their battery stock. So they went out to the general public and they said, look, turn in your e-cigarettes because e-cigarettes have a lithium ion battery in them. Turn in your e-cigarettes. So they had a social media campaign to have people turning their e-cigarettes and they started making more lithium ion batteries from the e-cigarette batteries by packaging them up in parallel. This is like a whole country working like MacGyver, right? I mean, they're just yeah. like, they're just making, they're pa making patches, of, you know, and hacks all, all, all day long about what can we do in the lowest tech way to keep the, you know, get what we need. I know. It's, it's really quite amazing. They added a footrest on the back of the bike so they could, they could carry a passenger. And they, uh, and they also installed a battery control system that included a 220-volt output, which allowed soldiers to charge gadgets and, get this, allowed them to power Starlink satellite internet terminals. That is, so th that is very <laughs> smart, though, the idea that people need to have gadgets, even just you know cell phones or whatever, that they need to charge. And then, on top of that, to have an uplink to Starlink, which is really an amazing Because uh, the Starlink internet was linked to their uh, missiles, their guided missiles, and they needed internet access for the missile guidance system because they could guide them in. So they may be able to, they, they could have set up where a forward observer could actually be targeting the, uh, the, uh, the target with his imaging system, and that could be used to guide the missile. Using wow. the internet connection provided by Starlink. Which, by the way, is an Elon Musk thing. We have to give him Elon credit. Elon Musk, yeah. Elon Musk has provided thousands of, of Starlink uh, base stations to Ukraine. Uh, I believe the government paid for them. I don't think he donated them. I think he donated the first few, but then the government, I think, stepped up and started paying okay, for additional Okay, fair enough. Ones. It's still uh, something that he's initiated and uh, and is uh, made possible. Yeah. It has transformed yeah. the whole the whole the whole battle there in uh, in Ukraine uh, because the the uh, the Russians of course wanted to bring down the internet and they, they they can't bring down Starlink then they tried to jam Starlink and Elon Musk could remotely reconfigure the software defined radios so that the jamming signals wouldn't jam it and even DOD has said, you know, we need some technology like that so we can reconfigure our systems on the fly. Uh, now, another advantage of the e-bikes is that they're not visible to thermal imaging. You know, this is what that sees heat because they don't really heat up. You know, they... Oh, e-bike, if it were a combustion engine, you'd be able to spot it much quicker. That's right. Okay. They, they've also geared these e-bikes to carry anti-tank weapons. Now, I haven't seen a picture of that. I know. I'm wondering, how do you balance that thing up there? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, wow, anti-tank, they're kind of heavy. But uh, so, but the, the, think about it. These, these things are light, they're fast, they're silent, and they could move around so fast that, that the Russians wouldn't know where they were, were being hit from. It's, uh, I mean, I'd say Ukraine is very resilient and very adaptable as this fight goes on. Uh, the company, by the way, E-Link, is donating 5% of all sales to fund humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine. 
Which is good because, I mean, they're actually based in Western Ukraine. So they're like helping their own country. But They're yes. helping their own country. Yes. So I'd, I, love to, I love to hear about these innovations that, they, that the Ukrainians are bringing to the battle because I think these innovations are what are going to allow them to win. Okay. Now, Doc, if one of those uh, soldiers finds a USB stick just lying around one day, do you think he should uh, you know, plug it in and see, see what's on it and maybe they can come up with yet another innovation? Or is that a bad no, idea? No, that oh, would be really Really a bad, a bad idea? idea? Why is that? <laughs> yeah, that's... I'll tell you, USB sticks have turned out to be used as a vector for getting into companies, getting malware into companies, getting ransomware into companies. It actually is quite uh, quite surprising. And so you've got to really beware of a USB stick. And we're not if, being told that because every now and then here at work, we have these quizzes that we take to sort of up our knowledge about how you know co- co- companies get compromised. And it's all about phishing and social engineering and emails that come and don't answer them. And here's a thing that I don't think I've seen mentioned in those training sessions. I know. So like, like for, if you, you all remember the Stutnik's worm, Stut, Stuxnet worm back in 2010, that was used to to basically compromise the centrifuges that Iran was running. And it was actually, it was a a very sophisticated piece of software that had been developed by Israel, actually. And they managed to uh, infect about 20% of Iran's nuclear centrifuges, just slowing them down, slowing them down, and, and actually making them dysfunctional. Now, what's amazing is all those centrifuges were in bomb shelters, not connected to the internet at all. And what the Israelis did, now we don't know for sure it was Israelis, we suspect it. They put the Stuxnet virus on USB sticks, on USB sticks, and they sort of left them around. So they could be found, left them in parking lots, maybe left them in restaurants. They, because they knew where the workers in this uh, plant worked, where they, where they hung out. And so these guys picked up these USB drives and they said, well, look at this. I got a USB drive. And they they took it to work. uh, And some of them took it to work in the centrifuge place and they plugged it into their computers and they immediately infected the system with the Stuxnet worm. So the 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 point of entry was through the USB drives. And this has been a very popular way to put in uh, to put malware into companies think about it you'd you know somebody could just leave uh, leave it leave something out and there and then there you would be and then you'd put it in there and you could bring uh, bring something really bad into your company this was also used by the way to bring ransomware in uh, Russian ransomware groups did this and you could uh, you could also damage the device so don't pick up a USB drive and stick it into your computer if you don't know where it came from throw it away Listen, we love your emails. Email us at stratford.techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Check out our website, www.stratford.edu. Check out all of our programs there. And when you find a program you like, tell them that you heard about that program on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.